0: Welcome to the first ever episode 35 of our podcast, Fintech Insider. Happy New Year from Fintech Insiders. Jason, Simon, and Chris and I are taking a bit of a break to spend a little bit more time with our families over this period. We've been incredibly busy this year. In addition to doing this podcast, in May we started a company called 11FS. 11FS is a consultancy that helps banks become truly digital. What does that mean? Well, today we thought we'd recap a little bit and share a little bit more about what it is that we're up to with 11FS. We're going to share some clips of us speaking at an event we co-hosted with Solaris Bank in Berlin not so long ago. You'll hear from Chris, me, Jason, and Simon individually, and then we'll kick over to a group discussion that we had with Solaris board member Marco. Enjoy the show and the jazzy music interludes.
1: Um, One of my big themes at the moment is I think we're going through a revolution in the world of humans, in that uh, we've had a revolution in humanity several millennia ago where we started to communicate. And then we had another one when we started to live in communities. We had another one in the Industrial Revolution where we started to move across borders and across the world. And this one is where everybody is connected in real time. And that's a revolution because for the first time in humanity... 7 billion people can trade and do commerce through the network. Um, And that has having a massive impact on the way we think about value stores and value exchange. And that's the reason why fintech is hot. Uh, Because we are in a position for the first time ever where anybody with a mobile phone can buy and sell things. And... We thought phones were for communicating uh, and for talking, but it's far wider and bigger than that. It's actually a computer in your hand and in the hands of people in the plains of Nairobi, in the plains of Namibia, in the middle of the Amazon rainforest on the top of Mount Everest. You know That's fundamentally radically reshaping the planet and how we think about it. The exchange of things that are of value. It's not just money. You know, we think money is valuable, and it is, if you recognize that the euro is your currency, which we don't in London. <laughs> um, value could be ideas, thoughts, memories, uh, anything, a design, a concept, um, a photograph. You know, whatever you think is of value to you, is the value that we want to store and trade It could be Bitcoin for some of us it could be ethers ripples it doesn't matter whatever you think is a value that's what's important and then you think about you can trade that globally in real time with anybody person to person point to point and you want to store that and get a guarantee of that value forever And the banks uh, are challenged by this because they don't really understand it because they're led by people who are bankers. They don't understand technology. Uh, Most financial institutions are led by people who are risk managers and financial accountants. They're not technologists. And that's their problem because we're moving to a world where value exchange and value stores are based on technology. And I call it the open sourcing of financial services. So bearing in mind my timing, I'm just going to conclude by saying the fundamental shift of the business model of financial services and value exchange and value stores is to an open-sourced structure. And the open-sourcing of financial services is the biggest shift we've seen in hundreds of years, because it's not been required before, to suddenly move from what was called object-oriented modular computing for internal purposes to it being on an open marketplace in an external internet-based exchange, where the front office is on smart things based on apps, the middle office is based on APIs, and the back office is in the cloud with machine learning, data analytics, and shared ledgers. And that structure is one that fintech startups get, and they're creating businesses based on a function based on a transaction, based on a process. Nothing is integrated end-to-end. Nothing is controlled. Everything is open, partnerships, platforms and places. That's a huge challenge. It's a fundamental shift. I'm really enjoying it. Thank you.
0: um, Yeah, so collective mentality. I think there's a a huge amount to talk about. I think, you know, Chris touched on a a kind of a lot of um, technological pieces in here in terms of actually where we see quite significant changes. And I'm sure Jason will touch on that. And uh, no doubt Simon will be talking about uh, uh, elements of blockchain and uh, smart contracts as well. For me, those things aren't really the the biggest inhibitors. You know, I think banks spend a lot of time saying, you know, only if we had the better core banking system, or you know, only if the regulator allowed us to do things, only if our our technology stack was better and allowed us to, to achieve things. And for me, this is bullshit, quite frankly. This is, these are excuses for why banks can't do things. And I think that that collective mentality that's in most of the organisations is is one of either ignorance or it's one of inability. Uh, and, I, and I think, actually, when you sort of move those things t- together, you know, at fs we have a um, kind of a saying. We, we believe that uh, digital banking is only 1% finished. Um, and I think that, that very much kind of delineates between two types of people. You know, if you're a, a banker who thinks that banking is 99% done, actually all you're doing is trying to sort of push analog capability through digital channels. And for me, that sort of spells, you know, you can, you can kind of see this in the stuff that's been delivered by people. You know, in their mobile capability, it's a dumbed-down version of internet banking, and a, their internet banking is a dumbed-down version of their branch banking. And really, you know, if you feel like this and you kind of move that way, you know, 99% done, that kind of works. From our perspective, actually, there's so much more to do. Really sort of that... that Uh, a collective push into a different way of thinking that actually if we've got all of this ability left using uh, new technologies through using mobile capabilities through using some of the uh, new adoption techniques that are available through different currencies or or blockchain then actually there's huge amounts that we can do you know we're we're all about creating digital banks not digitizing old ones Uh, and I think with that mentality then we can push things forward pretty well that's me
2: so so
0: So, I've, as you've heard, I've, I've started
3: two new digital banks, uh, which I think is even more of a flogging and kind of self-punishment than David. Over the last three years, I've spent a lot of time writing thousands of pages of regulatory documents, going to the, F, to the FCA and the PRA, recruiting team, building a proposition, bringing community together, and then not only doing that once, but doing it again. Um, and that's been just an amazing journey because I've seen, you know, it's very rare that in banking you can do that and um, and touch all sides of the organization to be able to talk to customers, to build product, to talk to the regulator. Um, but when I've been out in my sort of private life and I'll sit at a dinner party and someone says, so... Um, you know, what do you do? So I say, oh, I've you know, started a digital bank. You know, where uh, it's going amazing. We've got 250,000 people on the waiting list, 40,000 people using cards. We broke Crowdcube, which is a crowdfunding site, you know, so we're a, raising a million pounds in 96 seconds. You know, and they look at you and they go, mm, that's, that's really interesting. And they say, um, but but there's something kind of a bit, a bit wrong. So like, you do digital banking? I say, yeah. And they're like, my bank already has an app. Like, I don't know if you know, but I already, like, I have an app. So, um, and that's part of the point. That's part of the issue that actually while the kind of bankers, the, people, the 98% you know, done people will say, well, banking's done. You know, There are lots of commodity financial products. There's current accounts and un- unsecured personal loans and savings accounts and everything else. Um, and digital, by the way, is great because it lets us target people and do digital marketing. It lets us serve those people for a lot less money, and it's great. My little widget, my product line, is great because of digital. Um, but when, from from my perspective, and indeed a lot of kind of fintech in London, I'm sure the same. You know, having spoken to Solaris, the same here is banking isn't ninety eight percent done. It's one percent done. And why? But why is that? Why is the person who says to me? You know, I've got a banking app already. Why isn't that digital banking? And, and I think the thing is that actually, as David was saying, it's, a, it's the analog world. It's the passbook, the statement, the transaction, the form you fill in on a new device. It's like a newspaper, um, the picture of a newspaper on an iPad or selling a, um, an album on iTunes. It's kind of like it's the new media, but it's just the old one. So the question becomes, what is it about digital that's different? And I think this is like fundamental to fintech. And for me, there are there are virtues in digital, in the smartphone, in the ubiquitous network, in the data centre that makes this makes digital very different. It gives it strengths that change fundamentally change the nature of the product that you can can give. And those virtues are being being real time, it being intelligent, it being contextual, it being behavioural, often it being extendable into other APIs. But predominantly, it's a service. So the world of commodity financial products will die. You know, the world of a dumb current account that gives you a little statement and the ability to transact, that's going. So um, so I guess my uh, what we've done at, a, at 11FS for big banks, what I've done at Monzo and Starling, it's really to stop to get people to think about what that means when you apply the virtues of digital to things that people think they understand about like, Where do you get to? What does real-time intelligent contextual banking look like for a savings account, for insurance, for, for a current account? And that takes you to some really interesting places that I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. So thanks.
4: So maybe I'll tell the story about why I got into blockchain first, because um, it started with, a, uh, with heartbreak, unfortunately. Um, it started with heartbreak because um, around about Christmas 2013, I broke up with an ex-girlfriend. And I know, what a, what a time. Come on, sob story, people, come on. And I thought, well, what do I spend January doing? Do I spend it closing the curtains and drinking Jack Daniels? Pretty, pretty good idea, pretty good idea, right? Um, but then I thought, no, I sh- after doing that for a couple of weeks, I thought I should probably get a hobby. And my hobby was blockchain. So I started going out in London to all of the Bitcoin events And I met some really interesting people at these Bitcoin events. They weren't just crazy and they weren't just terrorists. Some of them might have been, but um, not all terrorists, believe it or not. And then I started learning things from these people. I started learning that this technology is not just this funny internet money that needs to go away, that actually there's really something here. And this is January 2014, when the banks were still very much of the view that, no, it's funny internet money, it needs to go away. And I started telling people at Barclays that maybe we could use this tech to solve some of our customer problems. Because there's these things now called smart contracts that sound just wonderful. Like, if you've ever dealt with a dumb contract, this is a 60-page piece of paper that I spend three years trying to figure out where I have to sign and what I'm signing my life away for. Wouldn't that be nice if that was digital? Yes, Could I make it digital today? Well, yeah, kinda. But the problem with making it digital today is the back ends of computers don't speak to each other really well. It's like I've got bank number one and bank number two and they just don't wanna talk to each other. They're like where I was when I'd broken up with my ex, let's face it. They were just, they were forlorn, they were drinking Jack Daniels, they didn't wanna talk to each other. But a smart contract is really a technology that allows banks to talk to each other, what I like to call straight-through processing for banks, or workflow. You can start a process in one bank, and it continues in another bank, and then it continues in this bank. That's the magic of blockchain. That's what excites me. And for some reason, the G20 Central Banks invited a guy with a beard to come tell them about it. And that was all because I broke up with an ex. And now I'm here to meet you lovely people. So my life got very strange from that night, but thank you.
0: And now, a quick word from our sponsors before the group discussion. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing.
5: Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
6: Critical Mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces.
7: Just the other day I was, uh, I was talking to some other people, and I have to say that, Jason, you need branches.
3: <laughs>
7: seriously, seriously. This is, you, you need branches with your bank for one simple reason. Because I've heard from a banker that, um, that you need the branches in order to have the people come in that somebody can explain them how the app works. What do you think about that?
3: Um I think they're right for their... For their um, in fact, we were just talking about it at lunch, that actually the evolution of the branch is very much more it not being the analogue channel, but being the assisted digital channel. So in the end, like... The, the people in the branches and the staff are still going to be using the same apps. You know, mBank is a really good example in Poland, but everyone's going that way. Lloyd's um, talk about sort of different layers of, you know, there are people who you have to do everything for them. There are people who you can introduce them to and sign it up and give them, you know, tell them how it works, and they'll move to digital. You know, digital is, uh, you know, just reduces the cost of service. It reduces, you know, branch costs. It does some amazing things, in you know, very well. But the whole society is shifting, you know, radically, but not all at the same time. So, you know, new digital challenger banks have a, you know, a section of the market that they can very easily sort of go after and address. But that isn't the 65 million people who live in the, you know, in the UK. So so actually that's, you know, branches as an educational establishment, as a, as a training scheme for getting everyone else into sort of digital, I think does, does play a big part.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a big bit about where you are today and where you want to get to, right? A lot of the, a lot of the large banks are, are faced with, you know, 150,000 people working for them. They've got government breathing down their neck to not make 10, 15, 20,000 people redundant in branch networks. You know, there's kind of all of these things that they would want to do, but there's so many pressures to kind of stop them sort of immediately transitioning to it. Just the fact that most of these guys have got kind of very long tenures on property will kind of inhibit their ability to just turn them into pubs and, and cafes like most I of them in London. It. Yeah, well, it'd be great. I you know, it'd add a whole different thing at the counter, wouldn't it? <laughs> but but I I, I kind of think the and the like say the transition is that the the challenger banks are kind of picking up very um, digitally savvy customers as well. So actually, you know, for for even even me, you know, I I, I wouldn't do everything online because. I'm an idiot and I'll press the wrong button in a mortgage application and screw it up. And then I've got nowhere to live with my family type thing, you know? So, so actually for, for stuff where I do need a nudge or I do need some sort of an arm around me or some, uh, some comfort type thing, then I'll, you know, I'll pick up a, pick up a phone or do it through a digital channel because I'm not really given an alternative yet. Um, but at the point where actually we can really do everything through digital, then I don't see the why, why you wouldn't do it
2: but still uh, the traditional banks use the branches to establish a long-lasting customer relationship do you think that fintechs can also establish a long-term relationship with their clients even if they don't see them
0: you you would find it obscene how long-term a relationship i have with my amazon app honestly seriously the the, the, the manifestation of a, a digital experience if it's a good one actually you can you can create a really good experience with it and actually if, you know to the point where you know that is my first port of call for anything, buying anything, and Jason will back me up on this one. So. Yeah,
3: um, it's a relationship, but it's an abusive relationship.
4: My one, yeah. It no,
3: is. but <laughs> what, yours one, and to banks. You know, they're they're bad landlords rather than great waiters. You know, they um, they're the they're a service provider that if you make a mistake, they're waiting to charge you for it, and actually won't give you the tools in order that you know that you could very easily get out of debt. Big proportions of, uh, of of bank fees are around unauthorised overdrafts or hidden in forex, or uh, and there are good reasons for it. I mean, it's in the UK at least. It's a semi-broken model where the public expects free banking. You know, banks have to pay for massive, you know, uh, uh, populations of staff and you want it back (laughs) Um, and branches um, and who's paying for that so that, you know, it's it becomes abusive. The needs of one partner versus the other lead to a very unhealthy relationship.
4: Yeah.
0: I, I don't think it's like a landlord. I think it's like a drug dealer. I think that's the thing. They get you hooked in like a loan or a mortgage or something that you're like then dependent on in terms of what you're doing. And there's there's kind of no alternative right now until until the new people that are coming through to really sort of change that dynamic. So,
7: You guys were today at the um, number 26's or N26's office, right? Good. And you were talking to Valentin. I think he's not here yet. He wanted to come actually. Um there was a shitstorm just a couple of weeks ago um, with uh, with N twenty six, and uh, we were thinking in, in the fintech scene, what was that? What's actually happening? And uh, it was quite interesting to see that N twenty six did a very sensible thing. They Saw that, um, that if somebody was abusing their service by going like five times to the ATM a day and stuff like that, that is actually that they are cost behind and just making the people aware of this. So there was, there was kind of a, a break going through the fintech scene or the, the tech scene or the, the new scene, newbie scene. And, um, they, they, there was a question. Should they do that or should they not? And I think, Jason, you have the same problem that, uh, that there is no branches and they, they, the people are not just sitting there to wait for you to come in. Um, but they, quite interestingly was, uh, they did what any other bank would have done or was doing anyway, and there was no shitstorm with the other banks. But for number 26, everybody was expecting it to, to be for free, everything for free. And then they, they did the very sensible thing. And I salute them that they have done that because that is, otherwise you cannot run a business. If you just go with everything for free, you have costs. And if people abuse you, um, how do you do this in, in, in Monzo? How do you do this in Starling and stuff? Um,
3: so the, the business model for Monzo is is supported by lending. You know that. But the more interesting question, I was talking to guys at Fidelity um, uh, who had a very similar. Question and very similar problem and Sophie Gibor um, Who's their head of European expansion was telling me that they had this problem where people were using the ATM that it was costing them money So they actually had like a, a conversation with their community look guys this thing's costing us money You know it costs. I don't know three euros for you to to take a um, money out of an ATM yeah. um, So what can we do about it one like we could charge you we could give you some free ones and it could get to a point where we could charge you Um Uh, And they, so they spoke to the community about how that might work. But one really interesting thing came up from the, from the community, which is someone said, at least in the UK, do you get the same charge if we get cash back from a retailer? If I go into a supermarket, give them my debit card and get, you know, get money back, which you can do in the UK. And they said, no, it's like, great. So they started a little like community campaign to do that. So when we were talking to Valentin today, you know, sustainability of business model came up. You know, there are a lot of fintech startups that just don't have the unit economics that work. You know, and burn VC cash in order to to drive customer numbers, hoping that one day they'll turn that corner. And I think you know, N twenty six to their to their um, benefit to their you know. To, it, 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 in a good way, have started to st- have that conversation of these, this stuff costs real money. How does that work? Can we give you more value than uh, than we take? But but the other thing is, I mean, look, Monzo broke the crowdfunding record by getting a million pounds in ninety six seconds from its customers.
7: So the Hertha BSC, by the way. So the did- BSC is the, the Berlin football. Okay. Club. They did the same thing. Can yeah
3: but, but a, an engaged community want to build and support the bank with you they want to they want your business to succeed and they but know you, that it do just do doesn't doesn't work do I do, do I do
6: seriously yeah right. uh, but
3: I think part of the problem is that, that I do no. well I'm happy to argue with
6: him no. <laughs> Good. jump
2: in and then we have one, one mention from Nat down there who wants to jump in <laughs>
1: i was just going to dive in with saying there's a lot of crap that's talked about banking And I'm not saying that you're talking a load of crap um, or you, but um, I think a, a, a dose of realism is required, which is the reason why banking gets bad media and bad customer view is because it's money and money is what controls our desires and dreams. And when you don't have enough money, you hate the people who control the money, which is the bank's. And the banks are regulated and have a structure that's government-controlled. And in many ways, libertarians and others are trying to break out of that control structure using technology. And are discovering that it's not easy because it's actually pretty complicated stuff because it's all about economic stability, control of societies, the structures of humanity, going back to what I was saying about the fourth revolution in humanity taking place right now. And we don't know what this revolution will end up looking like. But what's happening with fintech is, when I, whenever I hear fintech attacking the banking system, I kind of smile because it's not going to destroy the banking system. Um, it's going to supplement, augment, add, uh, and reach parts that the banking system doesn't reach. But it's not going to get rid of it. And equally, you know, there's a great article that Jason shared yesterday from Bloomberg, of. The fact that in the UK we've got 40 new banks that are opening their doors. 30. 40. 40. And they're not going to succeed. Uh, be, and uh, the obvious reason is that it's too many. They start with no money, no customers, no track record, no brand. And, you know, if they get customers and if they get brand, they get acquired. So, to a large extent, we're going to see the system that's out there right now continue to be there, out there right now. A lot of new stuff out there on top of that system, but that system is not going to disappear.
2: Can we just let Nat <laughs> jump in and then back to Jason? You wanted to say something? Sure, sure. I had a
8: question. Thank you. So I had a question. Um, actually, the, the conversation just rolled on since then, but uh, it, was, it was about customer loyalty. right? And I think, in a way, um, we've talked about several gorillas in the room. Early, early on, we had a mention of distributed ledger. I think that's as equally as big a, a, a gorilla in the room as, uh, as Brexit. And at least for the European or SEPA based um, financial institutions, I think also the new uh, access to accounts in the PSD2 is another big gorilla in the room. And I think it also pertains to this idea about customer loyalty, about where your loyalty lies. And I'm wondering how access to accounts, how you see fintech and access to accounts affecting customer loyalty.
0: Um, I, I think if I probably refer back to my, um, my my brexit appraisal of the of humanity in terms of doing it that customers are pretty stupid unfortunately and, and I think the the thing that we've kind of learned through other industries is that actually the amount of marketing money that's spent is usually usually where the last thing that people learn like literally we've we have a a, a general public in the uk that buy insurance based on the fact that you'll get a fluffy toy is like the incentive for doing it which is terrifying right in
4: fact, it is a mere-
0: it is a meerkat, but ever so still so, right. so so I, so I, I think the, the the challenge that actually comes forward with all of the you know the 40 plus and to be fair the, the 40 is actually across uh, multiple business lines in terms of doing it so it's SMEs it's corporates it's commercial it's retail type thing so there's kind of various ones and I, I don't I don't think it's quite the floodgate that uh, it's kind of made out to be in terms of doing it. So I, I kind of think the, the challenge is going to be have these guys got enough marketing money to really spend to actually get people through the door. You know, if you spend enough money above the line and actually you become a, um, a financial services organization in the psyche of the, the communities that are in the particular country, then actually you can start shifting current accounts really easily. Um, you know, we've got a switching service that's very good. We've got nothing that's really worth switching to. Um, You know, other than a bit of bribery to kind of, you know, put £100 in your account, there there isn't really any reason to sort of switch yet. And arguably over the next kind of 18 months, we're going to see, you know, an emergence of real differentiated sort of propositions coming to the market that actually give people a a kind of a reason to switch. As somebody who works in fintech all
4: day, every day, considered somebody in and around the space, a consultant in it, I haven't changed banks since I was 16 years old. And I, and I think that says a lot. There is no network effect quite like that's where I get paid and that's where my money goes and that's where all the bills come from. The inertia around that shouldn't be underestimated. I think that's a really powerful thing. However, the regulators are consistently chipping away at that. And account switching in the UK was was a, basically a promise that in seven days we'll make sure that everything that you've got in your current bank will be in your new bank. It's a promise. It's a legal promise. We'll make it work. And yet the amount of people changing bank accounts went down during that period of time. And the bank spent, what, how much was it, Chris? $80, million, 80 some $800 million on, the, on the process? It was an ins- obscene amount of money. And now they're talking about PSD2 will create more account switching. I don't know that that's the case. I think what would is a truly differentiated consumer proposition that solves a problem for you. Like, if it's doing something that I couldn't do before, or it's really adding to my life and my friends are saying, hey, you should use this thing, you should really, really use it, those network effects are important.
2: There's another question, and then David, just try to speak out loud, because we have a lack of mics, actually. It's on the back, and please say your name and where you come from, just briefly. Okay.
9: (laughs) So now I don't need to shout. I'm Johannes, I'm from Hamburg, and I like throwing stones or petrol bombs. So just for a little reality jack, well, I used to spend some time in Belfast in the 80s. So <laughs> Anyway, I'd like, this is a two-fold question. First question to the audience, who of you is actually using a fintech app? Two fintech apps? Five? Now, this is Berlin, right? And we are in a fintech symposium of people getting together talking about fintech. And this is probably the most advanced audience in terms of fintech you'd find in Germany. And I didn't see half of the people raising their hands with the first question. So really, the question is, when are you going to invent something really useful, which everybody can use and which everybody will use?
7: (laughs)
3: How many people have a smartphone? How many people check it when they first wake up in the morning? The, you know. What's
0: wrong with this guy? <laughs> 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 just, just, just do
6: this! <laughs> You know,
3: if we if we go back a few hundred years, if you ask the same kind of audience how many people had a car or how many people had a computer, you'd have the same answers. I'm not sure it's, you know, these things take time. There's a spread, uh, uh, you know, of things moving along. You know, at least in the UK, there is no digital bank. There's digitized banking, but four are coming along. So uh, you know, I share your um, your impatience with like I can think of fifty ways in which you know in which uh, intelligent digital services can provide me with a private banker and a pro- personal assistant that just makes my life fundamentally easier. But it's just not sort of you know happening at, uh, at the speed that I think everyone would like. I'll so that you. like so I'm just going to ignore Chris for a bit. <laughs> and yeah,
1: <laughs> no, I was just going to add that. Um, Building on what you're saying, it's the maturity of the markets and that a lot of us probably wouldn't even define fintech the same way. We probably wouldn't define digital banks the same way. We wouldn't define blockchain the same way. Everyone has a different view of what these things mean. So when you ask the question, how many of you use fintech or fintech apps, what is a fintech app? And I would say the most mature fintech app that I use is PayPal, and I've used it for a long time. And to begin with, and I still remember when I first started using PayPal – I thought it was not trustworthy. you know. <laughs> like, so can I really use this to, to buy things on the, online? Oh, my God. And then the more that I used it, the more that I found it was pretty cool and easy to use. And then the more that I used it, the more that I used it for bigger value transactions. And so I found that I used it without ever questioning using it. And it was just a um, memory muscle. And that's to your point, which is that when you get to the memory muscle of using Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, whatever it is that you're using, you don't think it's a FinTech app, you just think, oh, I just use that for stuff, because it's really easy. Um, and that's what we're building. And the building of that ecosystem takes time. And it's not, again, replacing what was there before. It's working out how does it work with what was there before? How does it do things that are different to what was there before? How does it make what was there before better, easier? How does it do things that what was there before doesn't do? It's all those questions that we're tackling. And the one thing that came out of t- t- today with one of the conversations with Mambu is that, um, or as I call them, Mambu number five, because everyone think has to have a number, um, is that, um, in Sub-Saharan Africa, we're seeing this revolution of financial inclusion where in 19 countries people are using mobile wallets more than bank accounts. And so suddenly 7 billion people are included in this network of financial exchange, of which 5 billion were excluded before. For that 5 billion, if you said to them you're using a fintech app, they go, what's fintech? But they're using apps and they're using them desperately because they've never had them before.
2: That was one question from you out there. Thank you, Jason,
6: for co-moderating. Um yeah, I, I like that everybody of you is speaking in, in images or tries to make a, a comparison to, to some sort of image and, and I like to do the same. So the question is what is the right correspondent image when, when I want to compare banking? And I think to me it reminds me of some some other thing that is more like electricity or transportation. So um if I look back a few hundred years and I think about transportation, you would also not ask, like, are you using transportation? Uh, that is that is not a question. People would walk, maybe they have a, a horse or a donkey, and the fancy people had a sailboat, and that's it. That was transportation at that time. And if you look now, you have skateboards, rollerblades, electro scooters, planes, whatever you want, um, because just uh, the idea of Going from one place to another has, has been s- dissected so much and so specialized that if I want to be fast, I take this. If it should be fun, I take that. If I have to a lot to carry, I take something else. If it, and so, um, I think that's the same thing that is happening with banking. Um, we used to think of banking as, as one very simple thing, which does one thing. We bring our money there and that's it. That's the few hundred year old donkey model. And now I just see it's not banking it's like to me it's a lot of different things and my question would be how do you see that because as long as we speak transportation uh we're not getting to the point like what are the peop- the real needs the real needs is like some guy needs to transport stuff the other one needs to be quick and so on and the the the, um, the equivalent in banking is, okay, what are my, my use cases, actually, for the people, and how does that manifest? Will there be, like, new ways of banking that really address those? And what are those, in your opinion, and, and who's going to win? What are the sustainable models?
2: Okay. Who wants to take the question? Me. You? Go ahead. Um, damn
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think we are at that point yeah, I, I don't think banks have really sort of cottoned on to that i think we've seen billions of pounds be invested in basically commoditizing what they do and actually you know really you know chris you talk a lot about the sort of faster horse bit i think you know banks have been spending billions of pounds trying to digitize analog setup to become really just a commoditized service that they've exposed to everybody you know if you kind of think of all of the goods Services and, and uh, kind of experiences that you have from a digital perspective—they have an element of knowing you and being particularly sort of pertaining to either your situation or your capability. And actually, banking is just this generic experience that, no matter you know who it is in the room, if you're logging into Deutsche Bank's bank app or you know RBS's or whoever type thing, it's exactly the same. And I, you know, really, for for so much money being spent in terms of that sort of commoditized experience, then I think that's where the challenge actually is. I I, I kind of think fintech only really exists because actually banks haven't really fulfilled the potential that actually everything it, that's that's out there could be. Um, and really, when you look at you know challenger banks and and the people who are kind of coming through, really, it's you should have it highlights to everybody really, not just about what you're doing, it's the way you're doing it that's more important. So, you know, spending a fraction of the money with a fraction of the people, you can achieve better outcomes. That just, you know, I think it's a a different mentality.
2: Hmm. let's take that question because what lay at the core of the question was where do the ideas come from and uh, let's take the discussion maybe to the next level Simon when you left Barclays you said in an interview that you missed the network effect does that mean that innovation cannot come out of big companies out of huge Actually, entities the
4: opposite. I think innovation came out of Barclays and got so far right I mean um, we did a lot with the Barclays Accelerator we did a lot um, you know, Barclays did ping it. It does a lot of firsts. It had the first ATM in the UK, the first credit card. Innovation can definitely come out of a big company. Um, General Electric has become famous for having been the big company that now got innovative again. It's just really hard to become good at doing innovation in a big company. It's doable. That said, part of the logic behind the Barclays Accelerator was to go outside to come back inside. Right. So if I'm a big company, do I have a monopoly on good ideas? Absolutely not. Are good ideas easier to come from outside? Yes, they probably are. And actually, are they easier to build outside of the death grip of committees? Absolutely, they are. I don't think you can survive. A good idea would find it really hard to survive committee one, committee two, committee three, spending review, compliance, wholesale risk, credit risk, market risk, and, 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 and. Those good ideas have to run a gauntlet to ever get live. And I often say doing anything in a bank, it, getting it live is the victory. It being good is like, eh, neither here nor there. Does it matter if it's good? We got it live. woo <laughs> Let let's pull the champagne. Whereas if you build something outside the bank, the focus will be much more about the experience, and then you can bring it in later and subsume it. And I think that was part of the idea. What I was talking about with the network effects piece was that blockchain and distributed ledger itself is, by its nature, a network technology. Having one organization understand it can only ever go so far. And I was really fortunate that the company gave me three years to go figure out that subject. But now I thought, well, great. It's good that I kind of got my company to understand it a bit. But I should really go out into the world and and try and share this amazing thing I found because I broke up with a girl with the rest of the world. (laughs)
7: There was a question over there. Okay, and just
2: one one remark. After that, Jason, I want to open to the public so that you can raise the topics that you want to address, okay? So go ahead, Jason.
3: But I think we we were talking earlier about these waves that are coming. You know, there's a whole host of waves that are hitting banking and financial services. To my mind, the closest one is this change from digitized to digital, which, which can be made and is being made. You know, then in some kind of order, there's the impact of machine learning and AI, which is going to change every industry and will fundamentally change finance. In the, uh, around there as well, is the other APIs, PSD2, you know, the, the move towards networks of, of services and how they connect. And then somewhere beyond that is, is blockchain. And if you think that all these things are coming so quickly in a, in a marketplace where the regulation is actually changing in order to, to drive innovation as well, where retailers and mobile network operators and startups and incumbent banks and Tier two, th- tier three banks that could never really compete because they didn't have the um, presence on the high street are now saying, "Well, hold on a minute, we've got a banking license. We know how to do this. We could actually become a number one, you know, bank." It makes it a chaotic financial services banking battlefield um, where where a consistent series of table flips is coming um, that just makes it the most amazing sort of place to work. No one like we've we've spoke to. You know, to board members of, of big banks, no one has the faintest idea what the next three to five years looks like. You know, which, which players will come along, who will do, dominate. If, if you read Chris's book, it, it, the answer. <laughs> there's
7: a stand outside. We can put <laughs> okay,
2: there was one question over there. Go ahead.
8: Yeah, thank you. It's it's a remark or a, a combined with a question to to Chris's statement um, on on how the banks adopt this change and. Um, Simon, as you're saying, the network effect. I've passed uh, the couple of days now in Geneva at Cybos. And all the bankers, you have been last year there, all the bankers uh, are talking on payments, are talking on fintech digitization and on blockchain. However, what they say, it's interesting technology, but how will it come into life? Because, uh, for example, when we're talking on, on blockchain, this real ledger, there is are so many questions on KYC, and on identity, etc., etc., etc. So, When talking on um, bringing it into life and network effect, what does it mean for the industry?
1: Um, I'm going to give you two takes on that question. Uh, One is to answer the question, one is to pontificate for a minute before I hand over to Simon. Um, (laughs) So, just rounding off the dialogue we were just having. And I said it in my opening statement, I think we're underestimating what's happening right now in the world, which is the shift of technology to connect everybody in real time globally is a fundamental shift. And it's nothing to do with the banking system. It's to do with the banking system was created for the Industrial Revolution. In the technological revolution, we're seeing something else happening. And the banks will still be something that underpins there's something else that's happening. But there's something else that's happening is global real-time value exchange uh, between anybody, anytime, anywhere, immediately. And that's something that we're all trying to work out. Where does that take us? Now, distributed ledgers form a part of that fundamental shift because you can't have a global connected community of 7 billion people using the mobile network to trade and transact if it's going to take 28 days through the SWIFT network, that fails. So you have to replace that network with something that's almost going to cost nothing and is real time. And some people think that's Ripple. Uh, I know that Simon and I don't. Um, I I just said you and I don't. Um, But we know it's going to be some form of distributed ledger structure And the challenge with blockchain stroke distributed ledgers, and the difference is that blockchain is part of a distributed ledger, you also have to have a currency, a signature, and a consensus mechanism. When you have those four things, you have something that works. Then you have to work out a shared structure for that system. And a shared structure is going to take a long time to agree who's sharing what in that structure between governments, institutions that do value stores and value exchange, and the technology community and the real-time mobile network that's forming as we speak. Um, that, if you go back to the Industrial Revolution, took about 50 to 60 years to emerge. I think this will be quicker, but you're still talking 5 to 15 year- years to emerge in a structure where we can have a almost zero-cost global network of value exchange. And, as I say, the bank's are going to be part of that, but... Banks are from the last generation of the revolution, of the industrial revolution. This technological revolution is going to create something completely new that banks might be a part of, or they might actually be superseded by something completely different. And we don't know yet, because it's emerging, it's early. And I guess my final comment is, the key thing about all of these things, when we talk about um, the Ethereum, basically, uh, when, when Ethereum did the hard fork, everyone was going, oh my god, you can't do that. Um, But Vitalik and the guys who run Ethereum said this is a one-year-old, you know Structure that's still developing So the fact is this is experimentation proof of concept developing and we have to realize and think about that backdrop And when we look at cybos and money 2020 we see two different audiences the suits and the jeans as I call them um, and th- as that mi- merges over the next decade we get something completely different but we just don't know what it is yet uh, but it's exciting to watch no,
2: you have to let Simon answer and Marco because they're both kind of jumping over
4: the reason we can't have nice things in banking um, so everybody thinks the reason we can't have real time is because of Swift Swift isn't the problem, banks are. Um, so the reason we can't have real-time payments is nothing to do with the fact that you can't send a Swift message real-time and has everything to do with the fact that bank systems don't move real-time. So everybody clearly needs to buy something like Solaris and use that now. Um, but, but seriously. Where
7: there's booze outside and you can get
4: one. Yeah, exactly. You can buy them outside. No, but seriously, it is all about the internal bank systems. And, and I think about network effects and when does this stuff become real Blockchain is real right now. Depending on who you are, there's $8 billion um, worth of Bitcoins being sold around the world. There's nearly a billion dollars of Ethereum being sold around the world. There are um, other stock is listed and did a bond issuance onto Bitcoin. Now, is that real enough that it's moving significant amounts of volume? No, neither was PayPal when it started. PayPal when it started was very, very small, but actually now it's a significant market player. And it segmented the market and served something that wasn't served. Now, our bank's adopting that. But it took 15 years. But actually, it did serve some markets that were quite sizable pretty quickly. Um, So a couple of things you may not have seen that I think are really significant that have happened in the past couple of days. CLS Bank, um, you know, clears the vast majority of the top 25 major currency pairs in the world. This is the bank, most of the banks use to do FX transactions between each other. This is a really significant piece of market structure have announced their blockchain project is progressing at pace. They've come out and said, "We are doing this thing. We've committed to it, and in the next 3 to 5 years that's going to happen." Um, Barclays did the first ever live transaction to a live customer a couple of weeks ago. This stuff is real now. It's small scale, but it's moved out of the lab. Everybody was talking a year ago but when's this stuff coming out of the lab? It, the horse has bolted. It's out. It's got real, and now it's started to be built, and it's going to take a while to scale that up. It's a horse. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. It's bolted. But, but I often look for, in terms of network effects, what are we looking at? Well, it's hard to change incumbent market structures. It is going to be slow, and what you're really talking about there is a technology upgrade, and it's going to start to feel very boring before it gets real. Um, the CLS market structure upgrade, when I told the journalist about that, they went, uh oh. I was hoping there was something there. It's like, well, no, because it's going to be slow and it's going to be forged and you're going to have 192 banks arguing over it, or 60 banks if it's R3. But where I get really excited is for where they don't have banking services already or for new asset classes. Like, who's securitizing diamonds? Who's securitizing trade finance? That stuff, that's where there's an ocean of opportunity that nobody's really taking advantage of. And the network effects that you could have there would be unbelievable.
7: Well, I fully agree with you on that one. There's still, there's still a thing called regulation, and we see this in day to day job. that whilst the technology can, can really go on further, what we all believe, there's still, if we talk to regulators, it's not, it, this is a different world they live in. Yeah, when we talk to them, sometimes you have to explain what the internet is. Sometimes we have to, to, you tell them there's a thing that's not gonna go away. So now, now, if we, if we think about just for a second, there's a couple of guys here from the payment arena in this, in this room who actually, without the blockchain, have solved that issue. And, um, the problem is, how can we do, make it happen with a regulator in our neck? And that is, um, (laughs) <laughs> no, but this is just just because because we we mentioned we mentioned uh, PayPal here, and PayPal it took like fifteen years to really get on scale, etc. But it took the regulation at least as long to get out with PSD one because PayPal was uh, for fifteen years was unregulated, so was the entire e money or, or, or money remittance uh, uh, industry, and then PSD one came out. Now the question is, how can we deal with that? So Marco, it's super easy. If you move to the UK, which I think is is
3: really what you're talking about, the FCA the FCA have a sandbox, um, which actually is is pushing forward. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I have a
7: sandbox
3: in Holborn. No, 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 no. Which which is which has signed up, I think, forty startups, and are actually providing letters of um, I forget what they're called, but essentially non-action letters of non-action. So essentially, they um, they work with startups on. Uh, on fin- fintech in grey areas to work with them to make sure that they actually deliver something innovative, something that's actually good for end customers, and then work with them to scale. So this is being like seen across the world. It's been sort of copied in Singapore and a few different places. But like move to London, it's it's all like no problem,
5: and we have less wasps.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's head to the question over there.
5: Jochen, it's you. Hi, Jochen from TraxPay. Uh, I just had the privilege to take over the bank account from our U.S. subsidiary, and it is with Citibank. And um, I just had the basic requests. Give me the statement. Give me the transactions and make a payment. And it was just a disaster. So those basic things. If I compare the the bank services in the U.S. compared to the bank services here in Europe, especially looking at online banks... It's a huge gap. So the Europeans are way ahead compared to the U.S. guys. Now, we as fintechs have a competitive edge compared to the banks, yes. But that competitive edge is, compared to the U.S., not so big. How would you guys rate that the banks actually just look on what's happening in that fintech space, copycat the success stories that we guys are doing, and then we're out of business? (laughs) (laughs)
0: if they could they would have done it already right there's this there's, there's kind of no bank that I've gone into that doesn't know what they should be doing you know there's no uh, there's no sort of innovation center that doesn't have a uh, a very shiny app that would solve a lot of customers problems getting it into the hand of customers is the bit that is really bloody difficult you know running the gauntlet as uh, simon was kind of putting it of kind of getting it there and that that sort of played back almost like gladiator-esque kind of moments to me that was good i liked it vivid um, but, you know, actually getting innovation into the hands of customers is the bit that I think banks have kind of forgot. You know, everybody's put in a sort of a shiny innovation centre with sort of lovely wood floors and Macs and, you know, kind of feel good about themselves because they'll bring in their chairman and their board and, you know, and everybody feels happy because innovation is happening type thing. But actually, what um, this like? well, uh, well, it's, it's, it's all the, the lovely glass buildings with lovely wood floors and lovely shiny computers type thing with, uh, you know, lots of young people in Like I say, it's the stuff to make the chairman and board members feel happier about life type thing. But until innovation actually touches the customer, then it's just nonsense, quite frankly. And uh, But but that's the thing. I don't think banks don't know what to do. So arguably, you know, if they can look at what you're doing, you know, in the UK, Monzo have have basically put out everything that you're doing, right? You know, it's they've very happily put out their roadmap of of what their product's going to be doing over the next 12 to 18 months good luck kind of copying that RBS or Lloyds or Barclays or whatever type thing. Because it's just, it's impossible to make that type of transition. The Not only from a, because um, I think the things that we're talking about, it's not, this isn't just like a UX game. You know, if we were to, purely talking about a, a shinier app with a better experience, some of the things that we're talking about are like shifts in business models. And there's no way you can just go and copy that. You know, when there's a, like say, an organization of a couple of hundred thousand people, changing simple things makes it bloody difficult.
2: So There have been two questions. One over here, one back there.
8: No, you're not getting the mic. So when it comes to, Frank, um, when it comes to uh, uh, payment, banking, fintech, you always have transactions, right? Someone moves money from A to B. So nothing new with fintech. So what fintech uh, have done is they disrupted banking, right? So everybody's talking about disruption. So... Everybody's talking about fintech versus traditional banking. What I would like to ask is, do you think that traditional banks can disrupt fintech? Let me give you one example. Um, fintechs are very good with the uh, customer-centric approach, something Stephen Jobs, uh, Steve Jobs uh, made Apple big. So um, they have very good products but when it comes to experience with regard to how to do business then obviously traditional banks are more experienced so what I would like to ask you is is it fintech against traditional banking or is it fintech and traditional banking what do you think could be the synergies
7: do you think they really really know how to make business better than than fintechs I, I like the idea I don't agree with the premise
1: Um, I often talk about three generations of fintech. And the first generation was fintech will destroy banking, disrupt banking, uh, challenge the banks, and the banks don't know what they're doing, they don't know how to respond. Um, That was first generation. And then what came out of that is that you've got two sorts of thinking. You've got fintech, which is applying um, technology to the offer of finance, versus banks that talk about... The offer of finance and applying technology to that, and that meant those two mentalities are fundamentally different. In that, um, if you're a technologist looking at how can I use technology to offer finance, you have a complete you have no constraints of thinking from the past, which is why fintech thought they could change banking. But if you're a financial company thinking about how to offer finance with technology you take into account all the risk and compliance and audit stuff, which is what's the government's agenda. So what then happened is that the second generation of fintech realized that they didn't understand the regulatory compliance government agenda piece well enough, but the banks recognized that the fintech guys could bring technology to finance in a different way of thinking. So let's incubate, accelerate, support, and partner with that and invest in it. And so a lot of the second generation fintech between 2014 and 2016 has been bank investments in fintech startups and partnerships, collaboration, cooperation. And what that's resulting in is the end game of the third generation, where you get a hybrid model where a bank acquires or copies or partners or brings into a marketplace. A FinTech structure, and right now there's very few marketplaces platforms where financial institutions have Adapted to that third-generation model and the third-generation model is banking as a platform of which there's a company here that claims to do it uh, not... yeah. um, And there's, uh, uh, there's others that are startups that claim to do it equally there are some banks that do banking as a platform, banking as a marketplace, such as Saxo Bank in securities coming from the Nordic markets, Privert Bank coming from Ukraine, Fidor, who claimed to do it, from Germany. And it's all about recognizing, in my view, and that's the hardest thing for incumbent banks to change to their thinking, is we want everybody to be playing on our platform. So it has to be completely open sourced and available to all to play in our marketplace. And for an incumbent bank to think that way is really difficult because they control, freak, everything. And they don't want to open out anything. They want everything to be proprietary and internal. But we've moved from what what I would call the service-oriented architecture, modular computing, object orientation of internal focus, to doing that on the Internet in a external focus in an open source structure. And if banks get that, they're going to get huge amounts of traction. I know we keep coming back to PayPal, but Stripe, PayPal, Square, it's all about APIs, it's all about openness, it's all about saying, financial services as a function, as a process, as a piece, we don't own anything, we don't own everything, we just want to own this little piece, and that would be good enough for us.
2: Mm. I just wanted to jump in with Marco, because you didn't like the premise. premise. Isn't there anything that fintechs can learn from banks?
7: Of course they can. Of course they can. But this, I just wanted to make one, one point um, Chris, uh, uh, Chris made. Uh, the last time I saw Chris on stage, that was not our stage, but it was a tad bit bigger one in, in Copenhagen, it was quite interesting when he was talking to Martin Blessing, then still CEO of Commerzbank, you remember, and Ricky Knox on the other side of the sofa. And you asked um, uh, Martin Blessing, Martin, what would you do now if, if you were suddenly CEO of a eh, challenger bank? Yeah. Um, and Ricky Knox for those who don't know is 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 the CEO of Tandem Bank which is like Monzo or like um, Atom in the the UK Um, and honestly I can't remember what he said, probably one of his ghostwriters didn't really look into fintechs, that was my impression but really I, I can't remember but then Ricky said one thing because he was asked the same question but the other way around what would you do if you were now CEO of Lloyd's and he said you know what very easy I would get out a ninja team and would build up the whole thing from scratch, and then migrate everything over. And I think that's the only—and I think he's completely right. My personal opinion that's the only way how these giants, dinosaurs, whatever you want to call them, they need to do in order to survive. That's my my opinion. I don't know whether they, do you agree on that?
2: Why shouldn't uh, they then not simply buy Solaris Bank? Hmm? No,
7: no, no, but it's this, no, this, this not about Solaris, but, but are, no, the point is, the point is, all of these challenger banks, including us, we don't see ourselves as a challenger bank, but all of these challenger banks, they're somehow, and we had this discussion before, are they the innovation hub of a big bank? They are still, I don't think that they're the, the innovation hub of a big bank, but they are a target for a big bank, and I think they should be. Yeah? And that is, um, just look at the business model of mo- most of these challenger banks, including us, by the way. It's, um, just look at that, and the exit strategy to be purchased, or to be the new Deutsche Bank, to be the new HSBC, I think it's there. None of us really wants to realize, but I think it's there. And if, if Big Ben were very clever, if Deutsche Bank still have, has money then, um, I think it's, it's, it's a good option. Okay.
3: So I don't think it's fintech versus banks. I actually think fintech is the destination. Everything will become fintech. But
7: John said
3: that. He was a very clever man. He's <laughs>
7: British.
3: Um, and so from that view, it becomes a race. It becomes a race for the, to, to build something that delivers those intelligent services to customers. Because in the end, it's not just a transaction. You did that transaction for a reason – because of some specific event, to send money to someone, how do you identify that person? What's the context? How does it work? And so you could spend a lot of time finding out what their IBAN is and putting all those details in, or you could say, Jason, send you know send ten pounds to Simon and and have it done. So I, I so I don't I don't quite agree that it's like it can be simplified to that level. But I also don't think it's fintech destroying banks or vice versa. Bank big banks have millions of customers. Legacy infrastructure, legacy ways of, of thinking about um, finance rather than some kind of service, um, and, and thousands of people who have optimized through decades to provide a specific service. And they have to transition that as fast as possible to a new, new way of working while supporting those millions of customers, some of which don't want digital banking yet. Meanwhile, you've got another group who, are, you know, who are building something from scratch for a very digital population, and their challenge is they have no customers. So, can those guys get to that, get to scale faster than those guys can change and transition? And so, it, it's not a these guys beat these guys. It's a case of we're all heading in a particular direction, um, and who can get there with scale and great service and a business model to uh, to deliver.
0: I, I think yeah. Sorry, just grab the mic from the other. <laughs> I think I, I think the you know a lot is kind of made from the like the banks to fintech stuff. But like I kind of see like the the banks almost like the um, you know a big castle, right? They've probably got enough food, enough drink to kind of kind of close the doors and wait out and hope the army goes away type thing. So arguably the you know literally. Most banks could starve out fintech over the next kind of 10 years and not really have a problem in terms of doing it. Enough money, enough customers, you know, not really a big deal. I think the the bigger kind of fintech aim is, is actually with the traditional suppliers, quite frankly. You know, like we spoke to Mambu earlier on, right? You know, Oracle, SAP, these guys are freaking out right now in terms of actually new challenger core banking systems like Mambu or Thought Machine or Levaris coming to the market with a completely different proposition that they can't do. You know, digitizing an old core banking system is bloody difficult. And actually, when you've bought... various different pieces of it you've stitched them together in a kind of a slightly obtuse way in terms of some sort of interesting tapestry it's very difficult to kind of digitize an entirety of an organization and arguably most of the suppliers to 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 banks are under more threat than the banks themselves from fintech and i and i kind of think that you know who would have thought we could start a, a tiny little consultancy and challenge you know mckinsey and these guys for doing work so I
4: like that David, um, you once called that the get off the planet strategy that you were talking about, I think a moment ago, where it's you build outside, um, and you move to it. And I like that idea that as a bank, your planet is dying. It's not going to be dead next year, but it is dying and you need to get off it. uh, yeah it basically is it's Interstellar the movie plot no it's (laughs) Solaris the movie
0: (laughs) I think Elon Musk is probably prepared for this Elon Musk is preparing for this
4: isn't he well he did build the BFR and the BFS to get us (laughs) to an interplanetary species but that said um, there is something as well you should be afraid of as banks and if any of you have looked at the Alibaba model they are a bank without a banking license with massive scale who see both the merchant side and the consumer side they are a case study in what the future of banking is going to look like And actually, they are now moving globally. And I think that would be something that should terrify you.
0: So now you'll know a little bit more about the guys chatting to you on Fintech Insider each week. We speak at events all over the world. So if you'd like to hear more from us, drop us an email on speaking at 11fs.co.uk. That's all for now. Thanks for being fans of Fintech Insider. We had a blast recording this over the course of 2016. And there is much more to come in 2017. Thanks. All right.